0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. On January 10th, 1795, a very tired caravan arrives in Beijing. The travelers have journeyed from Canton on an accelerated schedule through harsh terrain in order to make it to the capital in time for the Qianlong Emperor's 60th anniversary of his reign. The group is led by two Dutchmen, Isaac Titsing and Andreas Everardus von Bram uh, Hukkeist, who are there to represent the interests of the Dutch Republic at the imperial court. It's a momentous occasion, especially after the disastrous British embassy from George McCartney two years earlier. Little did they know that their embassy would be the last by Westerners in the traditional Chinese court. Their journey is the subject of Professor Tonio Andrade's The Last Embassy, The Dutch Mission of 1795 and the Forgotten History of Western Encounters with China, published earlier this year, a rich and readable volume that tells the story of an event long neglected by history and historians. Tonio Andrade is Professor of Chinese and Global History at Emory University. His books include... The Gunpowder Age, China, Military Innovation, and the Rise of the West in World History, Lost Colony, the untold story of China's first great victory over the West, and How Taiwan Became Chinese, Dutch, Spanish, and Han colonization in the 17th century. Today, Tonya and I will talk about the Dutch embassy, its protagonists, and the nature of the imperial court. We'll discuss the perilous and rushed journey the ambassadors made to Beijing and what their experience tells us about the nature of diplomacy. So, Tonio, thank you so much for joining me today on the Asian Review of Books podcast. Perhaps it's best to start with the book's title. Um, What made this the last embassy? And I guess more broadly, what was the state of Chinese-European relations at this time?
0: Thank you so much for having me. Um, that's a great question. the The last embassy. Um, so Chinese European relations are quite different from relations within Europe. Um, and that's because China kind of was organized um, or organized its foreign relations in what many scholars have called the sort of sinocentric world in which China was kind of at the center of things. It was the largest state in East Asia by far. And the sort of other states around it would send missions to China, embassies to China. So there were no permanent embassies in East Asia. That just wasn't the way it was, you know, in the West. In uh, the Renaissance, you know, you started keeping permanent ambassadors in, in foreign capitals. And that certainly wasn't the way that diplomacy was done in East Asia. And so Europeans had sent embassies to the Chinese court a number of times, Um, The Portuguese had sent some, the Dutch had sent some earlier, the Papal States had sent legations, um, and the British had sent one, the one that you referred to, the the disastrous McCartney mission. But these were sort of rare events. um, And so they were typically carried out in the traditional Chinese way. So bowing to the emperor, presenting presents and things like that. It was kind of a different conception of what diplomacy was, whereas in the West, there, I mean, it's not like Westerners weren't interested in, in all kinds of ceremonies and and bowing and things like that. Um, that kind of ceremonial and and ritual was very important in the West, but uh, in China, that was sort of the whole point of the embassy. Right, it was to organize the world through ritual. In China, the idea of ritual of rites. Was extremely important going way, way, way back in sort of China's traditional political philosophy. Um, the idea that proper organized interactions between human beings following Li, right, the uh, courtesy, you could say, or ritual, that was the way that society was ordered. So, you know, in Confucianism, the son kind of uh, has ritual propriety vis a vis the father the wife to the husband, the subject to the ruler, etc. right? Well, just in the exact same way, the idea was that states should should be organized the same way with China kind of as the big brother or the father because it was by far the largest country and the others kind of, you know. Uh, so the idea is that order on earth is organized and supported by Li, by courtesy. So that's kind of... Uh, uh, that's kind of a bigger uh, answer that gives you the context. So European and Chinese diplomatic traditions were were quite different. Um, uh, and in the modern period, that became a significant problem, especially for the British, which is one reason the British embassy went so badly. And so this Dutch embassy of, of 1795 was the last European embassy to be conducted within the traditional imperial system. Um, And the, the next embassy that was from Europe, from Western Europe, that was received in the imperial court, wasn't received until after the opium wars. And by then, things were very, very different. The British tried sending another embassy in 1816, but that one didn't, they couldn't even agree on protocols. And so So anyway, that's
1: why we call this the last embassy. Maybe we we could get into a bit about the, about the British embassy, the, uh, embassy by George McCartney in 1793, um, just briefly kind of what happens during that visit and how, why does it go so badly?
0: So this is, this British mission is very important. Like if you, if you take a Chinese history course or read a book on modern China, like a textbook on modern China, the McCartney mission is sort of considered a seminal event. Um, and basically, so George McCartney, Lord George McCartney, went to China in 1792 to try to open up relations between the British Empire and the uh, the Qing dynasty. And the idea was what he really wanted was to show the Qing how great the British were, basically, right? Um Uh, and the British kind of talked about this, uh, some of the the verbiage they use is the the British are great imperialists of the sea and the Chinese emperor is a great empire on land. And, you know, we want to bring them together. So he had very grand ideas and he was sent by the British crown to do this, but he also had very firm ideas about how, how the interaction should take place. Um, And so People have said that this mission failed because he refused to do the proper bows, the kowtow, to the emperor, because he felt that, you know, Britain should not bow down in front of a, you know, a foreign, you know, a, a foreign emperor. That Britain was proud, right? Um, and so, uh, so people have said that that's why it failed. But in fact, that's not really why it failed. The Qing were quite flexible; they allowed. Uh, they allowed McCartney to go on one knee as he would to his own sovereign. The real reason it failed is because the British had all kinds of of demands. They wanted uh, bases on Chinese soil on the coast. They wanted a permanent ambassador at Beijing. They wanted to open up other uh, ports besides the official one to British trade and things like that. And they were quite pushy about it. And the Qing were very aware that the British were kind of uh, an assertive, shall we say, an assertive power. Uh, and they were nervous. It was kind of a geopolitical decision. They,
1: they didn't really trust the British and they wanted them out of there. So let's move on to talk about the Dutch. Um, so I guess kind of what's the state of Holland and the Dutch East India company, which I think according to your book is falling on some hard times at, uh, at this point in history. Um, and could also tell us a bit about the you, you could call them the two protagonists of the uh, Dutch embassy, Titsing and Van Brahm. Um, and who were they and what were they like?
0: Yeah, they are fascinating people. Um, so I'll start with the, with the Dutch and the Dutch East India Company. So the Dutch East India Company was the great kind of maritime power of the 17th century. The Dutch had their golden age in the 17th century. And so basically after the Dutch Republic was created in 1588 or so, Um, The Dutch began to do foreign trade and the Dutch East India company was set up in 1602 and soon became just this massive presence um, connecting Asia, you know, maritime Asia and Europe, Western Europe, for the first time uh, in a really major way. Now, the Portuguese and the Spanish had been there first, but the Dutch created sort of a new level of interconnections. Um, And so... uh, So the Dutch East India Company had this great heyday in which it outcompeted the British by far. I mean, the the English East India Company was basically just a shadow of what the Dutch East India Company was. But that started to change in the 18th century when the British East India Company began to rise and the Dutch East India Company began to fall on harder times, especially towards the end of the 18th century. Um, The Dutch and the British. They had gone to war before in the 17th century. The Dutch did quite well. But in the 18th century, the British had the better end of the the wars. And by the end of the 18th century, the Dutch East India Company was falling on hard times. It wasn't able to compete with the British. And um, the Dutch Republic was also involved in the Napoleonic Wars as an enemy of France. And... uh, Basically, the French would invade, and uh, to support a sort of domestic rebellion in 1795, um, and the Dutch Republic would cease to exist in 1795 at exactly the period that these two ambassadors were arriving in Beijing.
1: So, what about the again the 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 two individuals that kind of lead this embassy, Titsing and, and von Brahm? Um, maybe kind of. Who were they? What was their background? And what was their approach to thinking about China?
0: Yeah, they. so these are two just fascinating people, and they're very different from each other. Um, Van Braam was, uh, he was an interesting guy. I kind of think of him kind of like your archetypal used car salesman. I hope you don't have any used car salesmen listening to this podcast, but uh, I don't want to denigrate anyone but basically he's sort of a salesman his his he's not exactly honest in fact the uh the embassy starts because he kind of exaggerates the importance of um of the event and pretends that uh, he says that other europeans are going to be there for the 60th anniversary of the chenlungs uh reign uh, and that turns out not to be the case something that he actually knew when he when he told them so he's kind of he's kind of bigger than life guy he's very very kind of persuasive and probably not entirely honest, but what's interesting about him is he loved China. Now Europeans had had a sort of romance with China, had a you know great interest in China in the 1700s. Um, so people like Voltaire wrote very you know favorably about China, and many other people too. Uh, in America, um, Benjamin Franklin was interested in China, and so uh, in this kind of sinophilia, like this love of things Chinese had started to die down by the end of the 18th century to be replaced with sort of what you could call a sort of more realistic or more critical look at China. But Van Brahm wasn't part of that movement. Um, you can think of him in a way as one of the last sort of enlightenment uh, Sinophiles. He loved China and he uh, talked about it very, for the most part, very positively. Uh, he had lived in China, he went to China as a young man when working for the Dutch East India Company. And he worked in the uh, Guangzhou or Canton sort of factory of the Dutch East India Company. And we say factory, but as as your listeners probably know, factory isn't what this was. It was basically a trading lodge that was based in Canton, city of Canton, uh, modern day Guangzhou. Uh, And there he just, uh, he became quite rich. He learned about the China trade Um, He left, went back to the Netherlands and started a number of unsuccessful ventures and eventually ended up back in uh, Guangzhou around 1790, um, where he began to create a huge collection of Chinese art and artifacts and books and things like that, maps, uh, spending huge amounts of money and hiring artists to paint things that he himself wasn't able to go see. So he he kind of had this idea of collect great making a great collection of China. He planned to retire, and it seems like he was planning to, you know, uh, make himself into a great expert on China. But he was very positive about China, um, and so he's really the one who started the embassy. I mean, actually, you could say not he, but um, he helped bring it along. The Chenlong Emperor himself had had decided he didn't want a massive celebration for his sixtieth rain year. Now 60th rain year, like this is an important event simply because 60 years is a complete cycle in the Chinese calendar, right? Um, the Chenlong emperor originally was going to have big festivities as his subjects had wanted, but he began to become worried that, uh, maybe it would be too sort of arrogant for him to do it. So he decided not to do it, but not everyone got the memo in time and the Southern viceroy of the two guangs, the, so, uh, Guangdong and Guangxi provinces, right? This is a very important man. His name was Changning. So basically, you can think of him as like a king in, in Europe. Like he, he ruled more people than lived in England at the time, for example, by far. Um, but he decided he wanted to send embassies to congratulate the Chenlong Emperor um, as part of this traditional kind of um, Sinocentric diplomatic uh, 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 structure, right? Um, And so he sent a delegation to talk to Van Braam and to talk to the British who lived two doors down um, and talk to others. Um, The British decided not to send an embassy, although they kind of said they might. Uh, Van Braam was asked to ask the Spanish and the Portuguese if they would send an embassy to congratulate the Chenlong Emperor. And he said he would. Um, And then they asked him if he would ask if he could, if he could get his bosses to send an embassy, and he said, "Absolutely, I will." He had been dying to go to China to see the interior of China, which Westerners generally couldn't do. Only if you were a missionary um, were you able to do that, or a diplomat. And diplo- sort of diplomats and their sort of um, their embassies were very rare. So he was excited to do that, and he wrote this letter saying all the other Europeans have decided to send the embassy. And if we don't do it, uh, this viceroy might not be very happy. And this is a chance for us to connect again with the Qing empire. We were the first to send a mission to the Qing way back in the 1600s. And now this is a chance for us to do it again. And by the way, it, it's not the worst thing that McCartney failed so much. Maybe we can make up for it, uh, do it cheaply and uh, make good relations. So so he kind of exaggerated this by saying all the other Europeans were going to be there, even though he should have known that they hadn't decided to do that yet because he was supposed to ask the Spanish and the Portuguese. But anyway, his letter worked, and the um, his bosses uh, in the Dutch East India Company said, yes, let's send uh, an emissary. Now, Van Brahm had said, I would be happy to serve as the emissary. You don't even have to pay me any extra. Um, but they instead probably wisely chose someone else, and that Isaac Titsing the uh, the other ambassador the main ambassador so they chose Isaac Titsing and van Brahm would be the deputy ambassador now Isak Titsing was a great choice he wasn't he wasn't crazy about China he was crazy about Japan so just as van Brahm was fascinated by China Titsing was fascinated by Japan and he was a more scholarly type he had lived in Japan um, you know for a number of years off and on and um, had even led an embassy or two embassies to the shogunal court um, in Edo or today's Tokyo. But he was fascinated by Japan to the extent that he learned Japanese. He worked very hard to learn Chinese, you know, because you have to know Chinese really, at least Chinese characters to know to be literate in Japanese, although he found it very difficult. But he was a very good person to choose because he not only had he had this diplomatic experience, but he also really understood how east asia worked i mean much much better than most other people in the or westerners in the world at that time um certainly better than any of the british did at that time
1: so now we're finally getting to their journey to beijing and the actual journey of the embassy which sounds from reading your book to be um you know even calling it grueling <laughs> sounds like an understatement um it was very hard very accelerated through through um the poorer parts of china i guess what what made this journey so difficult for for the dutch embassy
0: yeah that's one of the sort of really interesting things about this embassy so i mean this this embassy is important not just because it was the last embassy not just because it gives us another perspective on the chinese court but also because the the documents and the sources um are just really fascinating partly because their journey took them on an unusual route to Beijing. So uh, embassies going to Beijing from the Southern Oceans region, and that it, that would include many parts of Southeast Asia as well, right? And because the Chinese held relationships with all sorts of people around, around the world. Um, they would typically call in Guangzhou City, Canton City. Um, and then, you know, once their emissary had been accepted and sort of all the documents were checked out and the gifts were checked out and all that, uh, they would proceed up river along the North river, or the Pearl river, as we say, often in Chinese, in English, um, they would proceed by river cross, uh, over land into Jiangxi province from, from, uh, sort of Northern Guangdong province, and then go on a river again. They would, they would go along rivers all the way to the, uh, great port of Nanchang, the river port of Nanchang, which, um, which then uh, you would have to go on land a little bit there or you'd have to switch to different boats, let's say. And then uh, typically you would go along another river um, or go uh, along a lake uh, until you reach the Grand Canal. And then you would go along the Grand Canal through the richest, um, most famous parts of China, You know the, the lower Yangtze region, cities like uh, Hangzhou, Yangzhou, Suzhou, Right, these famous cities that were so wealthy and so beautiful and right famous. Um, and then you would go almost all the way by boat to Beijing. So that was a very nice way to go. It was, you know, the, the Chinese knew how to travel by boat and riverine transport. And this is one of the things as I was working on this book, I just became so fascinated with the Chinese transport system in the 18th century, very different from European transport system. Europeans used a lot of sort of draft animals and were on land a lot. Not that European rivers weren't important, but the Chinese river system and the canal system was just incredible. The way that uh, the way that it connected all parts of China, so all the way from almost all the way from Canton, you know, in the far south, uh, close to two thousand miles away from Beijing, all the way to Beijing, you could travel pretty much all of that by boat. But it took a long time. It was very comfortable, but it took a long time. Now the 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 Dutch embassy, the Chenlong Emperor was very excited to see the Dutch. Um, his grandfather had hosted the Dutch, and he he wanted to do the same thing. His grandfather had also reigned for a full cycle, right? So he and he had he was very close to his grandfather, like the Chenlong Emperor. Uh, sorry, the Kangxi Emperor. Um, he really saw a lot of affinities with him, um, and and loved him. Um, you know, before it, it, he died long long ago. By this point, of course. And so he, I think he was very excited to see the Dutch. Uh, he was very excited to see the Dutch. Um, and he wanted them there in time for the big, for the 60th year anniversary, which would also take place in the Winter Festival, right? Um, and But the problem is that the Winter Festival would be held, well, well, basically the Chinese New Year, the actual turn of Chinese New Year would be the 21st of January, 1795 in the Western calendar. But the Dutch really uh they really weren't ready to travel until the end of november 1794 and you can see that only gives them less than two months because they they needed to be in beijing well before the actual turn of the new year because the new year celebration begins before right uh so it didn't give them much time so they uh the the emperor made it very clear that he wanted them to be there and uh, that meant they had to travel fast and how fast they had to travel is pretty incredible um Uh, I have statistics in in the book and looking at how fast they went over land. Uh, Sometimes toward the end of the journey, they were, they were covering 40 miles per day, which, I mean, in a car, that doesn't seem like much, but when you, when each mile is walked or carried, or you're carried by porters or you're on a mule or in a, in a cart or something like that, it is uh, very, very grueling. And uh, in addition, this was happening. if, you know, they left in November, um, and they're walking into winter, basically, after they get off their boats in Nanchang City, and they start heading due north, they're walking into the sort of northern Chinese winter. And uh, anyone who's lived through a northern Chinese winter know that they can be very harsh. Um, uh, and so they were traveling during this. So so that's that's why they weren't Uh, they felt at times that they were treated quite badly. But uh, I think that it's quite clear as they realize in retrospect, that it was just really grueling for everyone. Um, Porters, it took more than a 1000 porters to carry all the all the things, including heavy presents like mirrors and things like that beautiful European mirrors and huge, very ornate fancy clocks, um, which were, you know, the a clock in those days you can think of it as like a fine amazing supercomputer or something like that right this mechanism that was very delicate that had to be carried by porters um so porters died horses died um and the you know the i think the dutch for the most part they had a hard time but they weren't the ones who suffered the most on that journey
1: so i i do want to start getting into getting the history and to maybe some of the bigger picture questions but I guess one more question about the embassy itself, the Dutch eventually reached Beijing. Um, and how was there, how were they received by the Imperial court? They were
0: received with unprecedented warmth and access. Um, especially if you compare it to, to what the British received. Now the British, when, when George McCartney went there at first, they were received very warmly. They were feted and given banquets and things like that. and, you know the the emperor just became increasingly kind of frustrated as the British refused to kind of be polite as he saw it, um, and and kept making these kind of ridiculous demands, like asking for colonies on their land and things like that. Uh, but the Dutch uh, the Dutch didn't do any of that. They were there really for um, they were there really for the ceremony. They understood how diplomacy worked in East Asia, and they were fine with that. Both Titzing and van Braam understood it, and their bosses understood it. They said very clearly, this is a ceremonial embassy. Um, the Dutch didn't have any big asks, right? They just were there to improve relations. Um, and it worked. Uh, the Chenlong Emperor was delighted. And we know this because... Uh, just I have just one example. so um, uh, there's a, a there are more examples in the in the book of all the different places that they were allowed to tour and things like that. Um, but for example, the uh, the Chenlong Emperor, he had a sort of ruling council called the Grand Council, right? And they, you know, they were the sort of primary kind of um, decision making body. I mean, it was an imperial system, but he had a lot of help from this grand council, right? Um, and they had said at one point, uh this drama party you know because the New Year's is just filled with all kinds of parties and and celebrations right this particular drama party that you're going to go to this afternoon Emperor is uh we typically do not invite people from beyond the borders right yes we can invite you know the Mongols who are part of the emperor etc the Empire etc but not uh, we typically don't invite the Koreans for example because the, and the Koreans were the closest kind of um I guess you could say uh, foreign relations, uh, the foreigners in terms of their relations with the Qing court. They said we don't invite them, so there's no precedent. We don't, we shouldn't be inviting the Dutch, so we recommend not doing that. Basically, but uh, the Dutch ended up being invited, and so did the Koreans because the Qing liked to be fair. Um, And there are just many examples of this, like places where the Dutch were brought into, and, and this this particular party was in the far north of the Forbidden City, where the um, where the emperor basically lived with his family, um, the, the, you know, wives and, and, uh, consorts and daughters and sons and all that. Not, not the, not so many sons at this point, but, uh, anyway, they, um, this is a part of the forbidden city that really is forbidden for most people. And yet there, the Dutch were, um, invited to partake in this. And we see other, many other examples of this kind of, it seems, that the emperor is making these exceptions again and again to, to just, he's just sort of delighted to to have the Dutch there and to show them a good time. And I think show them off to uh, to the court as well. Um, even on the very first day, they, um, they're they brought into, they, they're very confused. They, they get to Beijing, they're, they're exhausted, emaciated. They don't know what's going on. They think that they're going to meet the emperor. They're told they're going to meet the emperor. The emperor's very excited to see them. Um, and they think, they imagine some kind of grand, Um, you know, reception, uh, maybe like how you would meet an emperor in Europe or a king in Europe. Um, But in fact, uh, what they're treated to is a sporting event, like a sporting event festival. It's the beginning of the winter festival and there's a skating event, an ice skating event. And this is just fun for the emperor, right? It's kind of like, you can think of it as a big tailgate where they watch Manchu champions skating on the ice. So the Dutch are just kind of (laughs) confused. It seems much more informal, um, and that's I I think because the Qianlong Emperor clearly loved the winter holidays. That's, you know it's it's like it's if anyone knows how Chinese love the winter holidays today, it's the same thing back then. They had huge events, but so uh, so the Dutch were invited into all these things, given given tours of um, of intimate palaces where palace women lived and stuff. Really, uh, really unprecedented access.
1: So talking about the the ceremonies and especially the the Koreans that's a good segue into my first kind of let's say big picture history question um, you know the book talks about the uh, multi ethnic and multicultural nature of the Qing Imperial court um, the Mongols are there the Tibetans are there the Koreans are there um, Muslims are there uh Was this new for China? And did that reflect how the Qing approached empire building in general?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there's so much great work um, about this over the last 30 years or so, 20, 30 years, um, uh, much of which is sort of uh, referred to under the umbrella term of the new Qing history. But we have come to understand the Qing dynasty in sort of much richer, much deeper ways Um, over the past couple of decades. And basically, um, I mean, the question of whether this kind of multi-ethnic world was new for China, no, it it certainly wasn't. Um, The Qing was preceded by the Ming Dynasty and the Ming by the Yuan Dynasty. The Yuan Dynasty, of course, was a Mongol dynasty, right? Um, And that was very multi-ethnic. I mean, just to give the most Basic example: Marco Polo worked for the Great Khan, right, as an Italian, right? Um, So, so China and the Tang Dynasty is famously sort of open. Even the Song Dynasty, which although it was a Chinese dynasty, not a not what we call a conquest dynasty, that you know, which means it was ruled by the emperors were ethnically Chinese in the Song Dynasty. Uh, Yet still, there was quite a bit of inter-ethnic connection. The Ming Dynasty, the one that preceded the Qing Dynasty, so the Ming Dynasty is 1368 to 1644. um, And basically, the Ming Dynasty is often sort of seen as kind of a um, somewhat nationalistic, uh, anti-foreign dynasty. And there's certainly a lot of truth to that. But a lot of new research on the Ming also points out that Mongols and Mongol uh, kind of institutions and stuff were still quite important um, in the Ming dynasty, but the Qing was a whole new level. The Qing dynasty, I uh, said so one of the kind of big debates is, um, whether the Qing was an empire. And I mean, I think emphatically the Qing was an empire and most scholars, most Western scholars would agree with that, but empire has such a sort of, is kind of a dirty word in the people's Republic of China. And, uh, in the idea of imperialism as somewhat, how could you say, uh, suspect, means that that uh, official history uh, that the sort of official history in the PRC is that the Qing is just sort of a, a dynasty, right? Because otherwise, if you think of it as an empire, then what do we? How do we think about the places that the Qing established control over, like Tibet? Uh, Xinjiang, the Xinjiang, the new provinces in the far west, where the uh, Islamic peoples live and where so many issues are are happening right now. Um, so, uh, so, so it's kind of a touchy subject. But basically, it's pretty clear that the Qing saw China as the core of their empire of the Great Qing, as they called it. They didn't really use the term empire. I mean, it was just all under heaven that they ruled, right? But um, the great Qing, China was the core of it in the sense that it was the most populous, the wealthiest, um, and the place with, with you know, that had inaugurated the high culture that all the people or most of the people of East Asia uh, used. Um, but, but the Chinese and the Chinese part was only one part of the Qing empire. The most important part for the Manchus or the Qing was the Manchu part, right? The Qing were themselves ethnically Manchu. They came from Manchuria. They were a, a Jurchen people who had formed this powerful state in the late 16th century and, and established control eventually over all of China. But they never lost their Manchu heritage, right? Um, the old view is that they became Sinified, right? They lost their Manchu heritage and just became Chinese, and the Qing just became another Chinese dynasty. Well, no, that's it's very clear. The Manchu language was used throughout the Qing dynasty, even towards the end. As an official language, and certainly the Qing Emperor uh, knew Manchu and wrote in Manchu, and um, you know kept uh, you know records were kept in both Manchu and and Chinese, but records were also kept uh, in Tibetan um, and in Mongol. So uh, these different parts of the empire were considered um, they were considered an integral part of the Great Qing. Um, but they weren't considered Chinese, if that makes sense. Um, so uh, this kind of multi-ethnic uh, imperium, I think it's just a it's a fascinating perspective. And um, there's no doubt that the Qing really saw themselves as at the center of a vast world of many peoples, uh, which they were kind of in charge of in terms of organizing things within the realms of China, but also uh, making sure that peace was uh, upheld beyond the borders by through, through this kind of uh, Sinocentric, um,
1: or you could call it a Qing-centric dip- diplomatic world. So in reading the book, I was kind of struck by the wide array of sources that were available. Um, there's writings from the Dutch, there's writings from other Europeans, there's writings from Chinese. You could find the writings of the Korean ambassadors that were there. Um, so there's so much documentation, yet it seems like, in fact, it seems like it is, um, the Dutch embassy has been neglected by scholars. Um, why do you think that's been the case? Uh,
0: that's, I mean, that's one of the things that sort of fascinated me. Um, if you look at all the books that have been written about the McCartney mission, so uh, as I mentioned, if you if you take a course in Chinese history, you'll learn about the McCartney mission as this kind of seminal moment in which the clash of cultures between China and the West is, uh, began, right? Um, but you won't hear anything about the Dutch mission. Uh, same if you look at a Chinese textbook. Um, so the, and the McCartney mission has been the subject of dozens of books, literally dozens of books in many different languages. Um, the Dutch mission until my book really had only three books about it. Uh, none of the two of them were, uh, books published in the 19th century, basically by people who were in the mission, right? They were kind of mission accounts, accounts of the mission. The other one published in 2006 was also a mission account published much after the um, uh, uh, after the fact, right? Um, a guy named Frank Lequin became fascinated by Isaac Titsing and so published his journal of the voyage in a great, a great sort of version of it. But so that's basically it. And there was one major article and a few minor, a few smaller articles about it. Um, so, so that's interesting. Like, why has it been neglected? But another thing that's very interesting is that it has also been systematically misrepresented. Um, in most of the historical works that you look at about the, the Dutch mission, the Dutch mission is called a total failure, a humiliating failure. And people talk about basically all sorts of incorrect things about how the Dutch were forced to prostate themselves under the threat of the whip and things like this. It's completely false, and yet that kind of discourse, that narrative, got established in the historiography. Um, not not among everyone. Uh, recent articles by people like Leonard Blusay, for example, um, uh, kind of pointed a way out of that. But so, but the question is: so you ask why it's been neglected, and and I ask also, why has it been so misconstrued by so many historians? And I think the answers are to those two questions are very closely related, and they have to do with the British. The, um, the British, of course, dominated the 19th century, right? They dominated by, they were the great power in the 19th century. And the relations between Great Britain and China sort of most like famously in the two opium wars, were not very good. And so you can there, there's sort of a, a, a feeling that you can read the beginnings of all of that trouble in the McCartney mission and the failed Amherst mission that followed it in 1816. Um, and the Dutch mission just kind of gets swept under the rug because it doesn't fit this narrative of culture clash. So because the British, one of the ways that they justified um, going to war against China, or one of the kind of narratives that um, that accompanied war with China and hostilities in general, uh, was that the, the Chinese could not accept, they, they were too arrogant to accept Western diplomacy. And they tried, they, they thought they were better than everyone else and pushed everyone down and couldn't get along with people. And so any diplomacy with the Chinese was doomed to failure. I um, mean, so the Dutch embassy didn't fit that. And in fact, the first sort of British person to really write about the Dutch embassy, um, a guy named John Barrow, uh, he had accompanied McCartney, um, and he was very sensitive about criticism of McCartney. When people talked about McCartney having failed, he wanted to pretend that McCartney maybe hadn't failed, or if he had, it was all the fault of the Chinese. And yet here were the, the Dutch coming two years later and seeming to do pretty well, and uh, he, whether intentionally or not, um, just focused on the journey to China, uh, uh, you know, the, I'm sorry, the journey to Beijing from Canton, took all the bad stuff in that, made it seem like the the Chinese treated the Dutch horribly and ignored all the other evidence. And, and his book was a bestseller, basically, published in multiple editions in multiple languages. And so it kind of set the historiographical tone. Um, and of course, you know, that that ramified on and on. So uh, people continue to denigrate the Dutch mission and continue to focus on these British missions instead of the, instead of the Dutch. So that's one reason I think it's, we can blame the British to a certain extent and British hostilities with China. But another reason is basically the Dutch, uh, the Dutch embassy as, as promising as it was, as well as it went, couldn't really be followed up on. Why? Because the Dutch Republic itself fell in 1795, even as the ambassadors were there in Beijing, right? Um, and so uh, the new regime was basically a French um, puppet state, right? It was part of the French, uh, the the revolutionary French state, and um, not part of the state, but like sort of under the the French revolutionary state. Uh, and the Dutch basically didn't really recover until. Mid 19th century or so. The Dutch East India Company, which represented the Dutch state, right, did diplomacy and conducted war for the Dutch state, for the Dutch Republic, it uh, was bankrupt by 1795 or so and was basically went out of business at the end of 1799. So there was just no kind of institutional um, follow up on the, the Dutch mission of 1794, 1795, because the two institutions that the the, uh, ambassadors represented were gone.
1: So one final question, I think, about uh, about the Dutch embassy, and maybe to bring forward its relevance to the present day, what do you think the experience of the Dutch embassy tells us about, or how should we think about diplomacy today with the experience of the Dutch embassy in mind?
0: And that's really an interesting question. And it's something that I increasingly thought about, especially today, because, I mean, just as we're talking now, right, um, Xi Jinping gave his big speech yesterday on the 100th uh, anniversary of the Communist Party. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of, there's some signs that uh, things are getting rocky between China and the West, especially between China and America. Um, So so I'm thinking a lot about this and about how we have good relations. And I think I do think that the last embassy gives us some some clues. So the British were not good at diplomacy in East Asia. Um, they were forceful. They didn't really. They, they thought that their their own diplomatic ways were superior and were natural. Um, they were generally not terribly curious. Not at least not to the extent that Titzing and von Brahm were. Um, Titzing and von Braun, on the other hand, really understood East Asia. They liked it. They they studied it. Um, and therefore, they were much more able to uh, kind of um, to navigate it. Um, they bought into the precepts, and they were really fascinated by it. Not that they were, they were uncritical. They certainly were critical about China, about the Qing. They had plenty of things to say that, you know, they, they weren't Unreasonably cynophilic right? Um, but they understood, and and what they understood is that East Asian diplomacy was not necessarily about getting stuff and about talking, right? I, I mean, sorry, it was about talking. But it wasn't about, um, uh, you know, the kind of hard negotiation. So the British, when when the Chenlong Emperor went to, uh, went to the Qing court, he had a long list of demands or of requests. Um, and, uh, he said, okay, it's fine. We can have all these ceremonies and banquets and all that. That's great. But ultimately what we want to do is get what we want. Right. Um, McCartney, uh, McCartney failed partly because of that. And partly because his demands were just too much. Um, Van Bram and Titzing and their bosses, they were there not necessarily just to get stuff, right? They hoped that maybe they could talk about some of the conditions in in the trading center of Guangzhou, right, to improve things there. But they, their instructions, uh, Titsing's instructions explicitly said, that's not the main goal. If you can talk about it, great. If not, don't push it. Because the main goal is to celebrate the emperor's 60th anniversary. Um and, uh, and so they, they basically did that. They understood that that diplomacy can be symbolic it so the, the traditional East Asian diplomacy sort of as an ideal type right as an ideal it wasn't always this way is diplomacy is about connecting people and um, you know bringing peace through proper cur- uh, courtesies and interrelations right in a sort of Confucian way. Um, and, and I think that that kind of that kind of, uh, ideal of diplomacy is a good one to think about these days. And it certainly wasn't lacking in the West. Like Westerners also understood that. I mean, you can think of the great world fairs and even the Olympics sort of along those lines, right? That, that diplomacy is a much bigger thing than just negotiations between ambassadors wanting to get things right. Um, but I think today, especially that, to keep in mind that just visiting and celebrating together can be a very, very useful thing. Uh, you know, what, what happens if we celebrate foreign leaders' birthdays, right? These little gifts, I mean, sometimes you, uh, you hear about the gifts that foreign leaders give each other. Um, I think that those things mean something, right? These little courtesies. Um, uh, and, uh, so I think that, uh, that focusing on that kind of Symbolic part of diplomacy on the interact, building interactions and interrelations. That's very, that's very important. And also just the curiosity that Van Brahm and Titsing had, just to, to learn about other people. Um, I think, uh, I think that's just a wonderful, a wonderful thing. And that's one of the things that's so fun about reading the sources. That they just are endlessly curious and constantly describing all the things that they see and thinking about them.
1: So with that. Thank you for listening to our interview with Professor Tonio Andrade, author of The Last Embassy, The Dutch Mission of 1795 and the Forgotten History of Western Encounters with China. Tonio, I actually have one last question for you. Uh, Mm -hmm. Where can people find your work and what's next for you?
0: Oh, great question. Um, well, actually, the, uh, this is the first of my books that actually has an audio version. So you can actually find the audio version on Audible and in various other places, too. I think uh, I think through Amazon uh, you can find it. So if you like podcasts, um, you know, I tried to write it in a very kind of vivid way. And, and the readers that I've talked to so far have found it very kind of engaging. So it might be a good, a good listen as well as a good read. But you can find it pretty much anywhere. Um, that you can find books um, uh, or audiobooks. And as for what's next, I am now working on a, a sort of longer history of the Dutch East India Company. I became fascinated by the fall of the Dutch East India Company, and my earlier work kind of looks at early Dutch East India Company stuff. And uh, I, I'm kind of I'm writing a book right now about the Dutch East India Company in global history, specifically in Asia, um, and how we can. Uh, how the Dutch East India Company kind of teaches us so much about the, the history of the world and of modernization and of globalization.
1: So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at BookReviewsAsia. That's reviews, plural. And you can find countless other author interviews reviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. We hope you're listening to the Asian Review Books podcast now found on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, and share us with your friends if you want to continue to support us uh, interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more info on who's coming up on the show. But before then, thank you so much, Tonio, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.